What do you think of when you hear about Antarctica? Maybe it's the vast snow and ice plains, or the cute penguins and seals. But one of the most important things about Antarctica is the ocean currents around it. They transport everything from heat to debris to living organisms, affecting our whole planet. Join us as we take a dive into the fascinating and chilly topic of Antarctic Ocean currents. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your host in training, Ina, Grief, Hi. and Kat. Hello. <laughs> today we are chatting with our fellow host, Hannah Dawson. Hannah is a PhD candidate at UNSW in Sydney and studies the fascinating world of the Antarctic Ocean Currents. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks for having me on. So could you tell us... A bit about the main ocean currents of Antarctica and what are the main oceans around Antarctica? Yeah, sure. So the oh, Antarctica is um, a continent covered by ice. I just want to start with that as well. It's a bit different to the Arctic, which is just sea ice. Um, and surrounding Antarctica is what we call the Southern Ocean. And so the main uh, currents around Antarctica are the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. As the name suggests, it's a current that entirely... Um, encompasses or circles around the continent and it joins the southern portions of each of our other oceans so it joins the southern atlantic ocean to the indian and the southern pacific ocean and it's an eastward current so it flows um like south of australia it's flowing east all the way around the globe and it shoots through um i guess a narrow passage between the southern tip of south america and the tip of the antarctic peninsula and it just yeah continually circles eastward around the continent and then if you get Um, if you go further poleward, so closer towards Antarctica, you actually have a westward current or anti-clockwise current. So this is a current that flows in the opposite direction. Um, and we call that the Antarctic slope current. And that flows, as the name suggests, sort of along the slope of the continental shelf around Antarctica. So essentially there's one, the outer current is going clockwise, but then the inner current is going anti-clockwise? Yeah, that's right. And the, the outer current is... Um, I guess really strong. It's our strongest ocean current right. um, and it's a lot bigger uh, than the Antarctic slope current closer to the continent, which is narrower, but um, also equally important. So what kind of research are you doing on these currents and why are they so important? Uh, that's a great question. I might start with why they're so important. <laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, there are certain processes that happen around the Antarctic continent that actually do have a really big impact on our climate. Um, and one of them is every winter you get this sea ice growing. Um, and when that sea ice grows, it's basically freezing ocean water. And um, when that water freezes, the salt is rejected from that ice. And so this creates this really salty water mass. Mm -hmm. And salty water is denser than fresh water. So that water sort of sinks off the continental shelf around Antarctica and helps drive this global ocean circulation. The same process happens in the Arctic. And together they drive this sort of overturning circulation. And you might have heard of this as a conveyor belt or a thermohaline circulation. And that flow is really important for regulating our global climate. Right. Um, but also... These currents, um, so the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, the big one that flows clockwise, on the southern side of that you get this cold um, water that upwells and that cold water um, brings nutrients to the surface and when it upwells on the southern side of that current, it can basically take up heat from our atmosphere mm. and also take up carbon. So the heat and carbon uptake of these um, that are sort of facilitated by these currents help, 
I guess, regulate what's happening to our global climate from carbon emissions. So right. they're kind of protecting us in a way from a lot of the impacts of increasing carbon emissions. And also, <laughs> there's more. <laughs> um, these currents help protect the cold waters on the Antarctic shelf from warmer waters further offshore. And if those warmer waters do get onto the shelf, they can cause increased melting of the ice shelves and that contributes to sea level rise. So obviously that's quite important mm. for Right. So when global. the carbon is getting absorbed, is it just going into the water or is it being absorbed by something in the water? Yeah, there's two processes. So you get this... Um, if you have a concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you also have one in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, so you get this, I guess, physical exchange of carbon dioxide depending on how much is in the atmosphere versus how much is in that ocean. Mm -hmm. But you also get photosynthesis in the ocean from phytoplankton. So that process right. draws down carbon dioxide in a biological way. So do you have any statistics on like how, like on the rate of this carbon capture versus like a, a forest, for example? I'd like to put it into perspective. Um. I think I've got some rough estimates. So I, I think globally the ocean is thought to have taken up about 40% wow. of the excess carbon dioxide that we've emitted. So it's, so it's quite big. Mm -hmm. And that is an estimate. It does range mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but the uptake of heat is actually yep, as equally important. Like there's estimates that the Southern Ocean has taken up 90% of the excess heat that we've wow. pumped into our atmosphere. So, And where is yeah. the heat stored? Well, it's stored in the ocean itself. Um, and... Yeah, which might sound surprising. Um, but because, um, yeah, when that ocean's taking up the heat, it's getting warmer. And warmer water is actually takes up a greater volume than colder water. Mm. So some of the sea level rise that we're seeing or expecting to see is because of that expansion of the water, because right. it's taking up so much heat from our atmosphere. Wow. so That's fascinating. Yes. Yeah. So and could you tell us a bit about the research you're doing on, in, on these currents? Yeah, sure. So I'm using ocean models right. to look at, um, I guess, these large-scale circulations around the Antarctic margin. Um, and I'm primarily looking at connectivity. So that's sort of how much water is transported from one region to another and what timescales does that occur mm -hmm. over. So what is the? why is it important to have connectivity around the continent? Like what is the like effects of having the connective or the implications of having these different oceans connect? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So before when I was talking about um, when sea ice grows and it creates this really salty, dense water mass that mm. flows off the continental shelf, that only happens in four specific locations around Antarctica. I mean, sea ice is produced everywhere, but mm -hmm. the formation of this really dense water only happens in four locations. And um, there are certain glaciers and ice shelves around Antarctica that are starting to melt quite rapidly and have been for the last several decades. And so that puts in this additional fresh water to the ocean. And fresh water is really light. So mm. there's concern that if that fresh water makes it to those regions where we're forming that dense water mass, it'll make the water too light to sink down to the bottom of the ocean. And so we change that whole global circulation pattern. Right. Um, so it's important to understand, for example, how much of that fresh water might make it into these regions. But the currents also can transport like larvae of organisms and stuff around the continent. So it's also important, I think, for understanding and managing certain um, species. Um, yeah. Do those currents change with seasons? So are they, um, I don't know, stronger in the winter and, I don't know, less strong in the summer? Or how yeah. does it work? Yeah, basically. Um, there is a <laughs> oh, no. Well, I'm talking specifically yeah, about the Antarctic slope current here, the counterclockwise mm -hmm. one that goes westward. 
Um, that does have a seasonality to it and it is a bit stronger in winter than in summer. But um, there's actually a lot we still don't know about it because it's really hard to get observations from that region. It's ice covered mm. for most of the year and it's very expensive to get to. So most of the measurements we have are of in summer. Um, and so, yeah, there's still a lot we could understand about its seasonal cycle, but it does have one, yeah. And how do you collect data on the currents? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> we need more. Um, so there are some, like I guess every summer, there are Antarctic programs that head down to Antarctica and they will sometimes take measurements um, of these currents. There's also been some mooring arrays set up. So you'll mm. put, a, um, I guess, a string of instruments into the water and that will measure what's happening throughout the water column. But because you get icebergs that detach from the Antarctic continent and travel around, you can't have any instruments in the top sort of 100 metres of the water column right. because they might just get taken out get by these icebergs. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so I guess we miss that upper column. Right. And then... Um, also, we don't have many of those moorings because they're expensive and hard to deploy. Um, we can get some data from satellite measurements, but that's complicated when the ocean is covered by sea ice. And now we have these, well, for a long time, we've had these profiling floats in the ocean. So they just bob up and down between the surface and 2,000 metres and repeatedly take measurements. Um, and we didn't have any in the ice-covered ocean for a long time, but they've sort of recently developed the capability to have some of the instruments under ice. So now we're getting some more measurements from those. And there's also some instrumentation that's been attached to seals. And so they can take <laughs> measurements for us. Yeah. They've got a little thermometer. They, yeah, basically they get this little like sensor stuck on their forehead. And they, when they dive and forage for food, they're taking temperature and salinity measurements for us, which is, is pretty so amazing. Cool. Yeah. And it, um, I guess when they – I don't know that much about seals um, – but I think they like molt or shed their skin. Right. So after a certain time, that sensor will just fall off. Wow. Yeah. Cool. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so when you talk about the, the the top layer, you can't measure because with some of those instruments. Is that where most of the material is moving from these other regions? Or is it the entire like depth of the ocean that things are moving around? Yeah. I mean, the entire depth is moving around. Mm -hmm. There are certain regions where this slope current is... Um, surface intensified so there's a stronger flow at the surface mm -hmm. but there are other regions where it's actually stronger at depth right. so it's a whole water column that we're interested in right and when yeah. you were saying that there was some species moving around in these currents like is there like can you tell us a bit about the implications of that of like species coming to these regions that might not necessarily have been there before if the currents are changing yeah so um i guess for that one we might step out and think back to the Antarctic circumpolar current, which is that big one that's flowing clockwise. So um, that's primarily wind-driven, mm -hmm. that current. But what happens when the wind is blowing on the surface of the ocean, um, because our Earth is rotating, the actual movement of that water on the surface is sort of 90 degrees to that wind. So we've got these really strong westerlies, and they drive this Antarctic circumpolar current, but in the surface layers you actually get this transport of things that are floating at the surface of the ocean to the north, like right. to the equator. And so um, I guess that's been considered for a long time like a really strong barrier to anything that's floating at the surface of the mm -hmm. ocean, preventing it from reaching Antarctica. But we now know that's not necessarily the case. And there have been some recent studies that have found non-native species like kelp rafts, for example, washed up in Antarctica. And those kelp rafts have come from locations north of or like in that circumpolar current. And these um, 
kelp rafts, all these kelp species, it doesn't grow in Antarctica, right. but it's found to be the specimens that they've found have been reproductively viable. So if the conditions in Antarctica were suitable, it could theoretically establish. And I'm not an ecologist, but I guess the implications of that are that it could outcompete the native um, flora and fauna right. and, and change the um, marine ecosystems there. Right. So just to go back to a kelp raft, <laughs> yeah, is that, is that someone like just like randomly stringing together pieces of kelp but like i imagine that's not what is happening so yeah um no it's so this kelp is um it grows on islands around the subantarctic but also in uh, new zealand and in uh, the southern tip of south america mm -hmm. so i'm specifically talking about southern bull kelp and it's this um yeah big species of kelp it's got these big sort of leathery fronds and it grows on the rocks in the coastal sort of intertidal zone and when there's a big waves or something, this can, it can sometimes detach from that rocky um, substrate that it's growing on. And it's really buoyant because of the structure of its fronds. And so it actually just floats at the surface of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And it can survive like that for a really long time. Like even though it's detached from where it was growing, it can actually survive. And it can also, so it just floats around the ocean basically. And it can also act as a habitat for a number of other marine species while it's floating. And so that's what we call a kelp raft, basically. Right. But you get other things that act in a similar way, like uh, driftwood, mm -hmm. for example. Driftwood's another rafting object that can act as a habitat for marine species, as can, unfortunately, plastic um, mm. and things like that. So they're all, I guess, rafting objects. I but Yeah, a kelp raft is just a floating object. bit of kelp, <laughs> <laughs> basically. So what kind of... Because now I'm just picturing like a crab <laughs> sailing to Antarctica on a piece of yeah. kelp. Is that like the kind of... Or like the scale of animals that could be coming to Antarctica? Yeah, I um, have seen a photo of a little crab on a kelp raft. Um, wow. But there are, yeah, a whole range of different species. Um, little gastropods, mollusks, um, bivalves, things that, that can attach to these kelp rafts or driftwood or plastic, um, barnacles, things like mm. that. Um, and they can survive and potentially be transported to Antarctica. And that's not to say that they would you know, survive in Antarctica because the water is very cold and many of these species are not used to it. And mm -hmm. there's also the presence of ice, which is um, quite, like, it's quite abrasive. So if species are not adapted to that, they won't be well suited to that ice. Mm -hmm. So they might get there and then just die. Mm -hmm. But um, in the future, you know, it's conceivable, or maybe even now that certain regions will be habitable for mm -hmm. these species. Wow. Is it mainly species that could be coming from South America? Or is it like where, like, what is the potential extent of where like these rafts could be coming from yeah well um uh i'll just talk specifically about the kelp rafts so, so not sort of the plastics or mm. driftwood um researchers have um found a couple of these rafts washed up on beaches in antarctica and they've done some genomic testing and they've shown that they've come from sub-antarctic islands right. so there's i think three different islands that they've identified them from there's Macquarie Island, or oh, maybe it's four actually, Macquarie Island, Kaguelan Island, Marion Island and South Georgia. So they're all islands in the sub-Antarctic right. Southern Ocean. Um, so that's where we know they can come from, but we suspect that they can also arrive there from um, a number of other different sources and potentially Southern Hemispheric continents right. like Australia as well. And, yeah. Maybe it's a question slightly out of your field, but do you know um, how many of those rafts are coming actually from the currents and how many are maybe coming from vessels with researchers? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the rafts themselves would uh, be coming from the currents only. Um, but research vessels that head to Antarctica do um, have a risk of introducing non-native species, but that's from things that are either 
in the ballast water of the ship that might get discharged. I mean, you're not allowed to discharge ballast water of ships in a certain region around Antarctica, but um, whether that's abided by or not, you know, mm. it's hard to police. Um, and then also the ship hulls can obviously have animals that attach to them, like barnacles and other stuff. And so that's the species could be introduced that way, but I don't really think a kelp raft would sort of attach onto a mm. um, mm-hmm. yeah ship hull. So I think primarily ocean currents for right. those. Mm-hmm. And when you were saying that, even though you're not an ecologist, like do you have, is there any, do you have any like ideas of how this could affect the biodiversity or upset the ecosystem that is in Antarctica currently? Yeah, I think it's just a risk that um, if any of these things do establish, they could, I guess, outcompete mm. the endemic um, species that are there. And those species that are already there, um, that are sort of native to the region, I guess they're really well adapted to that cold climate. And there's, you know, there's no other place in the ocean where you where it's colder. They, they sort of don't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So if they're outcompeted by non-native species, I guess we lose. Um, mm. We could lose them. I guess we disrupt that ecosystem in ways that we probably yet don't understand, or at least I don't understand because I'm not an ecologist. But yeah, it just caused disruption um, to those ecosystems. Right. And you c- could you tell us a bit more about the models you're using and how actually do you employ the measurements to, I don't know, say something about the currents? That's a good question. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that many observations for this region, often we will use ocean models to explore processes happening. Um, and so basically what I mean by ocean model is we're just dividing up our you know ocean into these various different boxes and we write a bunch of equations that describe um the fluid movement or the water movement of water through those boxes and um we sort of force that model with um the atmospheric conditions the wind and temperature that we've seen over the past and then we can i guess get you know measurements of what's happening to the ocean it's it's a model so it's imperfect it's not real but we can check that it's um against the existing although extremely sparse observations that we do have to make sure that it's doing an okay job. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically I use those ocean models because we don't have enough data. And then I use this um, particle tracking software, I guess, to track where these uh, rafts are going. And so I kind of like to think of this particle tracking software as, um, do you know that um, game from Winnie the Pooh they used to play where they would drop like sticks in the river or something and then mm-hmm. watch see which stick made it downstream mm-hmm. faster <laughs> it's kind of like that so my i guess my river is the ocean model and my <laughs> stick is this like virtual particle that i place into the model right. and i can kind of track where it goes right cool yeah it's very cool <laughs> so with that data you basically assessing like or looking at the potential of what could be moving around so we can kind of have a better idea of how these currents are moving yeah, so so initially I was looking at, um, I was using these particles to track the water itself. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at how long it takes water to get from one region of the sh- Antarctic shelf to another. Um, for that reason, I said before, because it's important to understand where that fresh water from the mm-hmm. ice shelves melting is going. And now I'm using this particle tracking to look at where these um, kelp rafts and other things like driftwood and plastic could be coming from that could be transporting non-native species to Antarctica. So I'm basically using... Yeah, the ocean surface ocean currents in this particle tracking to look at source locations of these drift objects mm-hmm. and also, I guess, how long it takes these objects to get to Antarctica and which regions of the Antarctic coastline are they hitting. Right. Because do they find a lot of plastic at Antarctica that's like kind well, of washed up from the, the rest of the world? Um, I'm, I'm going to say no. So some plastic has been found mm-hmm. in um, that has species on it at the... Antarctic Peninsula, so that's the northern tip of Antarctica, just below South America. Yeah. But when you say do you find a lot, it's kind of a hard question 
to answer. I, yeah. I want to say no, but you've got to remember that like the Antarctic coastline is so understudied. Um, right. It's ice covered and we don't have stations in many locations. So it could be things there that we've just never seen. Um, or get frozen or something. Yeah. Um, get covered. Yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't say a lot compared to some other coastlines mm-hmm. because it's not a populous um, country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that many people there. So you're not going to get as much plastic debris, yeah. I guess, in the ocean directly around Antarctica. But yeah, much of the coastline we've never really been to, mm. so hard to hard to, hard say. to answer <laughs> definitively. And you said a lot about how we impact impact Antarctica, but how like those currents are impacting other continents? Is there an impact? Yeah, there is. I mean, so the Antarctic slope current um, that's flowing counterclockwise around the continent that um, protects the cold shelf waters from this, like, I guess, reservoir of warmer water that you have offshore. And when I say warm, it's only like, you know, one or two degrees (laughs) Celsius. But compared to the temperature at which the ice shelves melt, Mm. um, that's quite warm. And so that warm water... Which temperature? um, So because the ocean is salty... um, It's lower than zero? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, the freezing point of water is lower than zero. It's about minus 1.9, I think, Mm. degrees Celsius. And because you've got these ice shelves that have water then at depth, that increase in pressure also Mm. changes that behaviour. So um, if you have, a, I guess, a thermal forcing or your water is maybe at 0.5 degrees Celsius, that can drive actually a lot of melt of these ice shelves, even though it's still quite a cold temperature, if if you know what I mean. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Even if the difference is slight because you're at such such extremes, it makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, this Antarctic slope current basically is a a quasi barrier between that warm offshore water and the cold waters onshore. And so if that slope current weakens, for example, you can get more of this warm water coming onto the shelf and then you're getting more ice melt and that contributes Mm. to sea level rise. Um, but also that um, process I was talking about before, like the global overturning circulation, where we're forming this really dense water that sinks to the bottom of the ocean and helps drive that. Um, I guess that regulates our climate in a way, like the the Gulf Stream in um, the North Atlantic. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's sort of part of that conveyor belt, and mm-hmm. that helps keep Europe kind of warm. Right. Um, and... Um, yeah, I think there's still a lot of processes we're unraveling in terms of how changes to that system can affect our climate. But there was one study by um, another PhD student at UNSW and my supervisor um, and some others that came out last year that looked at, so if that overturning circulation that I was talking about completely shut down, so we didn't have any water kind of getting to the bottom and recirculating like that, um, then it would push, for example, like the tropical Pacific into a more La Nina-like state. And so we'd probably get more like flooding rain type things on right. the east coast of Australia mm. and things like that. So it does have an um, impact on our global climate. But yeah, exactly how, um, I guess we're still understanding because mm-hmm. we, it's yeah, maybe new. surprisingly, there's a lot, we, there's, you know, we know a lot, but there's still so much yeah. more to um, yeah, so discover. With this understanding of how, like the climate implications of this, is there any like actions that can be taken to help this scenario i guess oh big question (laughs) i mean yes we can cut our carbon emissions Mm. um that's a very big thing um and i think it's also really important for us to obtain more like actual observational measurements um from around antarctica Mm -hmm. too because um i might have mentioned this before but most of our measurements come from summer so we have this real bias in our 
data set. We don't right. have any measurements from winter. And also we don't really have long-term measurements. So sometimes it's hard to extract what is a climate single signal versus what is natural variability. And I think it's really important. We are seeing changes happening, but it's really important, um, yeah, I think, to get more data so that mm. we can definitively say those changes are natural or not. Yeah. Because <laughs> is this very, how like new is this field of analysis, I guess? Like how recent is this information? Uh, I don't think it's particularly new. You know, mm -hmm. people have been studying the ocean since the early yeah. 1900s, perhaps even before that. Um, but um, I guess we've only really started to obtain really um, better coverage of our observations sort of in the last 20-ish years from the Antarctic region. I right. mean, like we still, people were studying that region beforehand. But um, it's, yeah, I think probably the, the number of, data sets we've been able to obtain have really um, increased in sort of the last 20-ish, mm. 30-ish years. And um, with that, like we were But it's not a new field. Yeah, I right. Guess. Yeah, um, but like with, in terms of how it relates to climate change, like surely that is more of a recent discovery. Um, I think the importance of these processes in our climate system have been known for a long time, but I guess probably only recently we're seeing changes yeah. happening. So for example... Um, you know, Arctic sea ice has been decreasing for a long time, um, but Antarctic sea ice, or the extent of that sea ice, had actually been increasing for a long time. So people were sort of thinking, oh, Antarctic is quite stable, like it's fine, we're nothing to worry about there. And then in 2017, we had this record low year where the sea ice wasn't, um, didn't get out as far as it should. It's just this like dramatic drop. And so right. scientists were trying to understand why. And now the last two years, we've had successive record low sea ice years again. So just last month, we got to the lowest sea ice extent wow. since our measurements began. And I guess, um, I think scientists are still trying to understand exactly why that's happening. Yeah. You know, like, have we hit some sort of... Threshold you know, yeah, with, like, the yeah, temperatures. Yeah, or is it... Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I think recently we've been seeing changes. And, like, over the last couple of decades, we've been seeing that dense water mass at the bottom of the ocean warming and freshening, which is concerning. Um, and I guess that's only been the last couple of... Um, I think the last couple of decades where we've got those measurements to be able to determine that, but exactly why that's happening, I guess, is still, yes, yeah, still a sort of open question. Right. So to turn it to a more positive outlook, <laughs> so um, what research are you looking to do or hoping to do in the future to try and, I don't know, continue researching this topic? Um, yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to finish off this project that I'm looking at at the moment, um, like where these non-native species will be reaching Antarctica, and I think that's useful because if we can um, identify where um, the regions of the coastline that might be vulnerable, then you can sort of um, design, you know, management or monitoring programs to manage that. Um, and then next, I might be doing some simulations with this ocean model to look at um, sort of end of this century. What changes mm. why, might we be getting in those right. currents mm. close to Antarctica? Like extrapolating mm. the current rate or expecting how things will be in the future? Yeah, yeah. So cool. I guess I'd take projections from the six um, simulations at the end of the century and use them to force this ocean model to see how those currents might change. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's not It's not all doom and gloom. Like yeah. there's, you know, <laughs> I think there's still a lot of hope. We yeah, can, yeah. Um, we're still understanding these systems mm -hmm. uh, in a way and... Um, yeah, there's still a lot of action we can take. So, And what drew you to study ocean currents? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Um, I've always been really interested in Antarctica. Mm. So I grew up on the southwest coast of Western Australia. Um, and I would 
remember so many times when I'd be out walking on the um, sort of peninsula there, I'd be looking south and be thinking, oh, if I just, you know, if I could just keep swimming, I'd eventually hit Antarctica. <laughs> you know? so I thought that was pretty cool. And Get on a kelp raft and yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't think the kelp raft would <laughs> support my weight, but... Um, and yeah, I guess I've always really liked the ocean, but um, it wasn't the path I initially took. Like I actually used to work as an environmental engineer in contaminated land, which is completely unrelated. Mm. Um, but I just started reading all these articles about Antarctic research um, and science and it just made me really excited. So I was like, oh, I've always had an interest in the ocean. I've always had an interest in Antarctica. I might just try and make that leap and see how it goes. Would you like to visit Antarctica or... Maybe you had the opportunity already. Yeah. I would love to. I have actually been. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, not for my PhD, unfortunately, because it's all ocean modelling. Um, but yeah, before I started the PhD, because I'd been working for a while, I was a bit like, oh, it's been ages since I studied, you know, and I, I um, applied and got into this postgraduate certificate in Antarctic Studies that they run at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. And as part of that course... They take you on a field trip to Antarctica. Um, wow. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah, I got to go to the New Zealand Antarctic base, which is called Scott Base. Um, so we were down there for three weeks, um, sort of, you know, trying to help out with some science parties, but I'm not exactly sure how much <laughs> help we were. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've also been on an ocean research cruise that sort of went down to Antarctica, but it wasn't an icebreaker. So, you know, we could see icebergs, but we weren't in right. amongst the ice itself. Um, so when you went with yeah. the New Zealand group, was that on the... Like on land as well, or like on the boats, or just like actually on land. No, that was on land. So we wow. um we flew down. Wow, cool. <laughs> they have this flight share program with the um, US because they also have a base close to the right. New Zealand one. Yeah, so we flew down and we landed on an ice shelf in a plane, which is a bit <laughs> bizarre. And their base is located on um, Ross Island. Um, so, how long does it take to fly to Antarctica <laughs> from New Zealand? Um, I think it depends which uh, plane you take, but I think for us it was like maybe six to eight hours or something. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it can be quite long. And actually, because we don't have, you know, that many weather stations, mm. for example, in Antarctica, it can be hard to know what the weather's going to be doing when the plane gets there. So <laughs> sometimes the plane will start flying and they get to a certain point where they have to make a call as to whether they'll definitely be able to land or maybe not. And if it's maybe not, they have to actually turn around and fly all the way back because right. they can't risk. They don't, you know, they don't have enough fuel to get all the way there, not be able to land and then make it back. So some poor people that go down <laughs> for science sometimes get these flights in a row where they fly, no. can't, you know, <laughs> and then have to come back and then try again the next day. So, right. yeah, we were lucky. Our first attempt, we got, yeah, the weather was good. So, we were able to land. Good for Antarctica. Which I'm thankful for. <laughs> I don't really love sitting in planes. But. How do you pack up for a trip to Antarctica? Mm. Like, what, what do you take with you? Oh, they, they kit you, well, um, the New Zealand program anyway, they kit you out with this, um, yeah, this, all this really warm gear. So, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So, what kind of research were they doing when they were down there? Um, well, there were some science programs down there that were tagging and monitoring some seal populations. Um, there were some science programs that were looking at the sea ice. So, there's algae that grows under the sea ice, and I think sea ice is also really important for the larval stage of some species, like the toothfish. And so, I think they were looking at the impact of. Um, uh, like light making its way through the sea ice to the underlying algae. So they were doing some experiments where they'd like shade out the sea ice with these perspex panels or with snow or without snow. And I think that's to try and determine like, um, yeah, how this algae might respond as well in the future mm -hmm. if there's changes to the amount of snow on the ice or 
less sea ice and things like that. Cool. Um, and then there were other people that, yeah, there was a whole bunch of other science stuff going on. There was um, the US program had this um, team there that were putting this um, robot called Ice Fin <laughs> down. Um, <laughs> they were drilling basically into the um, into the sort of grounding line of this particular ice shelf, um, which has been melting really rapidly. So they're drilling this really long, deep um, hole and putting this robot down through the ice shelf so it could measure the water underneath the ice. Cool. Um, and so that was some of our first measurements from right, like underneath the ice shelf. Wow. Um, yeah, that was pretty amazing to see. That's I mean, I didn't so see awesome. that happening, but I saw the little <laughs> the robot setup. ice fin thing before they you know, cool. took it out onto the shelf. Yeah. Can you apply your research to other planets, to oceans on other planets? Um, Would you like yeah, to do yeah, that? I mean, yes, in a way, I think. Um, I think the, yeah, the physics fundamentals that underpin oceanography like geophysical fluid dynamics could be applied to other planets and actually so that team I was just talking about that have ice fin I think they're studying Europa which is the moon of Jupiter and which Mm -hmm. has like ice covered and I think um yeah I think scientists believe there might be liquid water underneath that ice Mm -hmm. and the closest environment we have to that on earth is Antarctica so they were kind of deploying this ice fin through this ice shelf to sort of test it out and see whether it might actually be something that could be deployed on Europa as well in the future, um, wow. which is pretty That's exciting. So I mean, what, yeah, what I specifically do, I guess, can't yet be applied, mm. but what other people in the field of oceanography and um, that yeah, are doing could, I think, in some ways be applied, yeah. Cool. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was wondering if you, for the last question, if you had one piece of advice to give to young scientists or someone who may be doing a PhD or thinking about doing a PhD, what? It can be as broad or specific as you would like. Oh, big, big <laughs> question. <laughs> um, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, so for someone doing their PhD, this is, is advice that I wish I had been told and also that I wish that I listened to even now. <laughs> but I want to say, don't assume that everyone else in the room knows more than you do and don't be afraid to ask questions when you're listening to something. Like the amount of times I've been sitting in a talk and being like, oh, I want to ask that question, but I don't want to make myself look like a fool. And, you know, then someone really like um, really well-known and respected in the field asks the exact same question and people are like, oh, yeah, great question. And you're sitting there being like, oh, I should have asked it. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, just don't be afraid to um, – and this is something I'm still learning, but mm. don't be afraid to make yourself, you know, look like a fool or put yourself out there. Ask those questions if you've got them and don't assume everyone else knows more because they might not. Yeah, I think um, that's a really great piece of advice. Mm-hmm. And for, yeah, I guess – other scientists in general just or younger scientists that might be thinking about doing a PhD I'd say if it's there's something you're really interested in go for it I feel like we need more people who are really interested and passionate about what they do so yeah yeah absolutely well awesome uh, thank you for being on our show Hannah <laughs> thanks for having me it was great this was Boiling Point the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM we will be back with a new science story next week bye for now